And this is the truth. We were inspecting a beam, and the beam had very long chain attached to a master link and then the crane hook. Well, as the crane started to lift, the chain unloaded on the beam, off the beam, and the beam flipped over onto my foot. And through my steel-toed boot, it broke my foot. But I didn't lose my foot because I had my steel-toed. Welcome to Safety Factor. My name is Ben Hankst, and today we're talking about rigging inspections. I'm joined by Tom Horner, Mazzella Corporate Rigging Inspection Manager, and Brian Holmgren, Mazzella Regional Rigging Inspection Manager. Thanks for joining, guys. Do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got started in the industry, a bit about your background? Any funny stories you've had while you've been out on inspections, or kind of like, is there anything that pulled you into the industry? Yeah, I started uh, with Mozilla back in May of 95, and somewhere in 97, 98, I started to go out in the field to help with some inspections, and then it just kind of uh, happened from there. There wasn't really any decision or or pathway. It was just, that was just what I ended up doing, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, I think the great thing about inspections is it's not so much about the product we're inspecting, but it's about all the amazing customers we get to visit and what they produce and how they produce it. And we get to see their factories and the steel mills and the auto plants and the mom and pop shops. We get to see basically how everything is built or supplied to another vendor. Uh, so I came into Mazelle in 1998. Um, I actually came into our chain shop as a welder in our chain shop. And I quickly moved into inspections by 2000. So basically when you work in our chain shop, you quickly uh, begin to understand inspections because there's incoming repairs from customers. Uh, So I quickly learned how to inspect chains and slings and other rigging product as they were coming in for repair. Uh, And then opportunities opened up in inspections. We were growing in inspections and Naturally, like I said, I was uh, already trained in that, at that point, and it seemed like a clear path. Yeah, I think Brian had a really good point there. Back in 97, 98, 99, um, safety was really just in its infancy, really across the country. Um, inspections weren't rigging inspections. They were just alloy chain inspections. Customers didn't have us look at their wire ropes and their synthetics and their shackles and they're below the hook devices. That all really started in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, and that's when we started to grow. We adapted, we prepared ourselves to be able to take on that type of inspection work. So like I said, way back in the day, uh, we were only looking at alloy chain slings, and it was really based on OSHA 1910-184. Now you have the world of ASME, all of the standards are updated, uh, a lot of different requirements. So. Uh, a lot of evolution in, in 25, 26 years. What brought that change about? Uh, did OSHA change the rules or did safety culture just change? Why did all of a sudden there was a switch from just inspecting alloy chains to inspecting all of rigging? I think the safety culture at certain organizations was ahead of the curve. I can think of a few uh, current customers in the Cleveland area that were way ahead of everyone else when they looked at 
uh, their rigging. So, and, and I think the the standards kind of caught up to them. Uh, OSHA really doesn't write standards. They have some information, but they refer to the governing bodies. And that's when ASME was really uh, coming into their own with the rigging standards, B39, uh, B3020, uh, et cetera. And everything was just kind of written and caught up and revised. And, and, um, and we still see it today. There are still customers out there that are catching up to the standards. So how long have you guys been doing inspections? How many inspections? facilities do you think you've inspected in your life? Jeez, I tried to run something. I've probably done 5,000 inspections. I can't tell you how many customers, but I've been in nearly every major auto plant in North America, stamping plants, the steel mills in some fashion, um, all the major manufacturing, because we really built everything out of Ohio and expanded from there. So I could I can drive into nearly every city in Ohio and tell you where I've been. I could probably walk into facilities that I haven't been in in 25 years and remember where all their rigging is at. <laughs> you know, and so it just you know, and, and you go to the customers repeat times. We have customers we've been doing inspections for for longer than I've been at Mazella, so over 30 years. So we have a very long history. But and how many pieces I've touched? Tens of thousands. Not not quite sure on how many inspections. Definitely in the thousands. Um, pieces. I know Tom and I tried to figure out that out in the past. Um, some guys look at 50 to 100,000 pieces a year. Some might be a quarter of a million pieces a year. So it could be in the millions of pieces we've looked at <laughs> easily. Um, but yeah, I spent uh, probably 12, 13 years in the field doing inspections. So in that time, easily probably a few million pieces and a couple thousand inspections easy. So in that time, I'm sure you guys have seen some hairy pieces of equipment in the field. So you want to, without naming names of companies or anything like that, do you guys want to share some some of the horror stories that you've seen in facilities, maybe in the early days or maybe even now? Oh boy, I, I got a couple that come to mind. Is uh, I remember a gentleman brought me a nylon sling that he had broken in half and bolted back together. Um, <laughs> And obviously we see some incredible homemade devices. Some of them engineered and look very, very nice. And then you see some that were welded out of the back of a pickup truck in upper West Virginia or something. You know what I mean? Just these horrendous leaf fabricated devices. Um, and then you see things we, we've walked up. I think Brian might've even uh, been there with me. I've walked up to a chain sling and seen a link broken in half on an alloy chain sling as it's hanging in use. Wow. You know, so you, you, you get out there and you just see all sorts of amazing stuff, shackles welded together, homemade pins, just a little bit of everything. Yeah. I was actually going to use that example, Tom. Uh, I remember going out with a chain rep doing an inspection and walking up to a chain to inspect it after they just made about a 60,000 pound lift. And as I'm looking at the chain, as they're starting to bring the chain down to inspect, there was a broken link in the chain. That was just one of multiple times I remember walking up and finding broken links in chain um, as they were in service and being used. I was doing an inspection at a customer again in Canton, Ohio. And this is the truth. We were inspecting a beam, and the beam had very long chain attached to a master link and then the crane hook. 
Well, as the crane started to lift, the chain unloaded on the beam, off the beam, and the beam flipped over onto my foot. And through my steel-toed boot, it broke my foot. Holy cow. But I didn't lose my foot because I had my steel-toed. Wow. We went through all the protocol, and I had my foot in a boot because I had a fracture on the top of my foot that needed to heal. From But all I could think about back then was going back to the late 90s when I told you I started doing inspections. I could walk into any customer, no safety glasses, no safety shoes, mm-hmm. nothing but a Mazella shirt and a clipboard. I could walk through the back door of any customer and just say, hey, where's Joe Smith? And people will just point you on your way, and you just go meet them and do your thing. Now you come into 2024 and you get security badges, online training, drug testing, steel toes, metatarsals, FR relate, uh, FR you know clothing, special gloves, hearing protection, hearing protection. I mean, we were so far, we are so much more advanced than back in the day. So when you come across these extreme examples, what are some of the excuses that you hear or reasons why these are still in use? Basically, it, it comes down just to a lack of training. How many times I've walked up to a user of a piece of rigging and they've asked me what we're doing and we'll explain, hey, we're inspecting, we're documenting, you know, this is the requirements and your company's, you know, staying in compliance, yada, yada. And they'll say, well, how much is my chain, uh, how much can I lift with my my chain here? And there's a tag right here. They haven't received even enough training to understand that the identification is required, but it's also right in front of them. And then obviously they don't know how to do the calculations based on angles and whatnot. So um, really it just comes down to when when I get any kind of question, it's almost always based around a lack of training. And same for you, Brian. Is that the same thing that you're hearing? They just don't know or is it? Yeah, or, you know, it could be, uh, you know, that damage just happened. Or are, are you are you sure that's enough damage to pull that from service? You know, what qualifies you mm-hmm. to make that determination? Yeah, the, the, this is a great, it's a great question. And it's actually kind of deeper. When you look at the, ref, the failure uh, criteria for any type of item you're looking at, alloy chain slings, it's obviously written and it's objective. It tells you a gouge. It tells you a weld burn. It tells you heat damage. But when you start to look at them, it becomes subjective to the person, to the individual actually looking at it. What is a gouge to me and what is a gouge to you? Mm-hmm. And how much of a gouge are you going to allow in service? And how much of a gouge am I going to allow? And where is it on the link? You know, is it in the elbow? Is it on the is it on the weld? Is it you know, in a place that's, uh, you know, the elbow is the worst part. So, you know, and we get those questions and we do get challenges back, like, what you know, what gives you the, the qualifications? So you explain our training and our experience and all that kind of stuff. But really it comes down to just laying everything out in front of the customer and just explaining to them, just look at what we're talking about. Look at this interlink where when you move these links away, do you see how much is removed from this one and also this link and then this link and this? How much of that capacity have you lost just in total thickness of your item? And we can, of course, get deep and deeper and deeper into all that conversation. But there is, it's typically all that just happened or somebody must have done that on third shift or something. So you mentioned that it, it, it's objective, but then it can become subjective. 
So how, how do you think you look at things differently from the average worker subjectively when you're looking at stuff? Are you more critical than they are? Or do you think that sometimes they're more critical than you are? It, we get challenged both ways, actually. We'll be challenged uh, during an inspection that we're being too critical. Or we'll be challenged that we're not being critical enough. Again, it's what is a gouge? What is... You know what is where? What is what is the what is that weld damage right there, or a, a weld burn, um, or a cut in a nylon? What is you know that type of thing? So so it, it comes back to number one. There's different environments, and and we're not strict or less strict than any type of environment. But we understand there are just environments that are very tough steel mills, and then there's other environments that you know they're generally more gentle on the items. But it always comes back to trying to work with whomever. Uh, you're having that conversation with to train them, to educate them. Hey, we're looking at this one chain sling. If you want to give us a few minutes, we'll walk you through how to look at this every day before you use it and give them that that sort of off-the-cuff training but information that they need to have in order to be able to use use those items. And Brian, when you get the excuse that it still works, what do you usually do to help kind of guide people into – the understanding that just because it's working doesn't mean that it's legal. Yeah, you kind of hit it on the head. Um, if it meets the removal from service criteria, then that is what it is. We're gonna we're gonna document it as such. Uh, we're gonna report it to our safety contact as such. Um, so if you choose to keep using that, uh, you're gonna be uh, going against OSHA and ASME at that point. Uh, and against your own safety department. <laughs> so that's a choice you're going to make. And, and that's a really important piece is when we're doing an inspection for a customer and we're looking at all their rigging, we're telling them what passes or fails. We're not an authority to tell them what they can use and what they can't use. Mm -hmm. It's still their property. Sometimes they do have to make that tough business decision. How do I keep myself moving forward knowing that you just – not you, but knowing that we've damaged our singular piece of lifting equipment, how do I keep my operation moving? So we get a lot of pushback on that. Well, are you telling me I can't do this? I'm no, we're just merely informing you. That's what we're here to do. The report we give at the end of the inspection is just a piece of compliance. What we're That's actually the good stuff that's happening is when we're getting these questions, we're revealing through this inspection where you're really lacking training, usage, care, um, that type of stuff. Yeah. So Brian, when you said we're going to report to, uh, the safety person, you don't mean OSHA, right? Cause you're not no. reporting to OSHA as rigging inspectors. You're talking about someone within their organization, probably someone who's brought you in to do the inspections, right? Yeah. It's usually, usually we're dealing with a EHS leader, uh, health and safety leader, um, and everything that we find on the inspection, we do report back to that person. Uh, so we would definitely report the uh, deficiencies or anything that has been removed from service. No one's reporting to OSHA. No one's. No, you're not going to no. tell in, tell on anybody. You're saying this is passed. This is failed. Yeah. Now it's up to you as an organization to decide what you're going to do with it. Absolutely. Like I, like I just mentioned, when we're there, we're satisfying a compliance requirement. We got to put this piece of paper in your lap so you could put it in your file, but you still need to use that piece of paper to dig into what is your situation in your facility really like? Why is my failure rate so high? If it, why is it so low? Is my training grade, you know, 
so many different variables, but that's why you got to start digging in. So when we do get those interactions, we want to talk to them. Hey, you have this failure. Here's how we can address it. You need to do spares. Do you need a salesman to come in and look at application? Is it training on the care use and inspection? Are your people doing their pre-use inspections? We want to get those conversations going from all of it. But no, we never reveal anything to anyone else for somebody's inspection. And, and even talking about OSHA, OSHA's kind of dropped as this, like we're supposed to be afraid of them, mm-hmm. right? And it's really just not the case. We're only talking about compliance. So in, in, the, in the sense of OSHA, I can't tell you the last time that I've had a customer reach out to at least me and say, OSHA was just in here. I got drilled. Can you come do an inspection? Most of the time, what we find from a customer is, hey, we were just bought or we've got a new person who came into EHS and we've revealed that we're lacking in our inspections and we need to get a program going. Can you help us do that? Um, Most of the big pushers of Internal auditors are the toughest ones. They're the ones within their own company that are going down to the maintenance staff or the EHS staff and drilling into the reports and the training and whatnot. So again, that's why we love to have those conversations because we want to push them in that right direction. So if there ever was a case that OSHA had to talk to them about anything, all their ducks in a, are in a row. So when you say fulfilling a compliance requirement, are rigging inspections required? Yes. Uh, they are required uh, once per year, uh, periodically, not to exceed 12 months, and that is a minimum. So can you walk us through some of the consequences of dropping a load, besides the obvious of accident or injury? What, what happens if they drop a load, and how can we help with that? Whenever there's an accident, there's a, well, within Mozilla, there's a very specific protocol of how our sales supports that customer. But generally, the immediate effect is all workage has stopped. Everything is just, we're stopped. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're not working right now. Um, so did they damage their crane? Did they blow apart a chain sling? Did they damage whatever they were lifting? Uh, did they, you know, whatever kind of, you know, did somebody get hurt? That type of stuff. And then the questions start coming, well, we need everything inspected. Where's our reports? Everything is just this tsunami of, oh, my God. We want to, you know, our cranes inspected, our slings inspected, you know, uh, where's our training at? You kind of just see this influx of, of people kind of running around with their heads cut off trying to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's when that should have all already been in place. But there's also some other things is when you, when you hear about a dropped load, the first thing that I think about was what were they lifting with? Because if it's a chain sling, those things explode in pieces go flying everywhere. Mm -hmm. So where did that link take off to that blue? Where did that hook take off to that blue? You know, did anybody get hurt? Um, If it was a blown chain sling and the block flew up into the crane, um, you know, what kind of damage did they do there? Um, Who was close to it? And I think most of the time when you come to any kind of failure, the first response by the customer is it wasn't our fault the rigging was what failed or the crane was what failed and the blame starts to go sort of in that direction instead of what did we do wrong? Mm -hmm. So if the rigging failed though, usually 
It's not usually that the rigging's defective, I Correct. would assume. Usually there's something that has gone wrong within the lifting process or... Yes. Yeah. When I, for all the years that I've been here and how many accident inquiries I've, I've maybe been mildly a part of, I've never seen a defective chain sling, a defective weld, a defective link. I've never seen a defective nylon sling or defective sewing or a defective twin path or shackle. It's always come back to the process itself of, of moving the load. Brian, who can perform inspections? Can anybody perform a rigging inspection or do you need to hire a specific company to do so? So there, there's a minimum here and then there's, you know, what is the safe standard? What is the uh, best practice? Um, you need to be competent and qualified per OSHA and ASME. Basically, you need the training. Um, we take it a step further. We certify all of our inspectors. Uh, they go through thousands of hours of training. We, we take the stance on basically, you want to put your company in the best defendable position to make sure that the person doing that inspection knows what they're doing, does it every day, and is going to come in there and make sure you're compliant. We're going to give you a compliant report, uh, but you have to be trained, like I said, um, at minimum, competent and qualified. Um, we just take it a step further. Could you perform in-house in documented in-house inspections yourself? You, you can, as long as you're competent and qualified by, and your employer is the one that's going to name you competent and qualified and they have trained you to do such, uh, you certainly could. So what are some of the differences that you see from in-house inspections versus third-party inspections versus inspections done by someone like, I don't know, a, a crane inspection company who doesn't necessarily specialize in rigging inspections? Oh, a couple of things. It's very rare that you see any kind of customer doing their own inspections anymore. Um, they're still out there. Usually they're much larger organizations, um, it, but it's very rare. The problem you have with that is when you've taken a person or a couple people to do that for you, you've spent the money to train them and to travel them for the training, and, and, and now you're going to take them away from their full-duty job to mm -hmm. do this. You're going to have to create your own documentation, complete that documentation, and keep your own filing. So what happens when that person moves on, retires, transfers into another role? Internally, you're going to have to go through that all again. So when you look at the cost of that to the cost of hiring a third party, that's, I think, one of the main reasons why everyone goes third party because they, they realize what they got to go through to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. Brian's exactly correct, competent and qualified OSHA ESME. What we see, what I see, is really too many people think that they can just do these because they haven't studied the standards enough to understand what being qualified and competent is. And, and I'm going to give you an example. If you, Ben, went through training today and you went through three days of training and you put your hands on a bunch of different stuff and then one month later you actually did the inspection at your facility, you've done one inspection of X amount of pieces. Mm -hmm. 12 months later you come back after not having touched one piece of equipment. How experienced are you? Was there new rigging introduced to your facility that you weren't trained on? So maybe on paper I'm 
competent and qualified, but there's a difference in standards between competent and qualified. Th this is why we love the term best defendable position because the way we've built our program is, as Brian mentioned, when somebody comes into our group, we put them through a specific number of hours of hands-on with all the different products that they can touch. So that way when they're in the customer uh, for the first time by themselves, they've had a lot of experience with alloy chain and below the hook and lever tools and chain falls and shackles. They've We can prove this, right? We can prove that this is all they're doing every day, not something that they're called to do once a month, once every six months or once a year. And again, if, if you were only doing an inspection, let's say you're with a, a company that services cranes and you're a top tech and you're working on cranes all day, but twice a year they ask you to come off the crane and look at rigging at two different customers. Well, if the rigging is not the same, how much experience do you really have of what you're looking at? Mm -hmm. And then do you even know what you're supposed to document and how you're supposed to document? Because across all the standards, there's different requirements. So again, our best defendable position is this is what we do all day, every day. We can prove this via paper trails and everything we do is above or beyond what the standards require. So again, going back to the customer doing it themselves or any other entity, even if it's a rigging shop, um, again, what makes, what is the proof of their qualification and competency? So Brian, you mentioned that at Mozilla, our inspectors get certified. What is the training process like for Mozilla rigging inspectors? So the very first process is uh, we send all of our guys through a um, ITI accredited institution to get training um, on anything below the hook. Um, that's a rigorous three-day course, uh, hands-on textbook, uh, Ocean ASME standards learning all the nuts and bolts just to start. Uh, then they really dive in and they get into the field and that's when they get their uh, hundreds and thousands of hours of hands-on under a another qualified and certified inspector. That's really when the training really takes off. So. so it's even once they go through the initial training part of it, then they actually go into the field with somebody else and they're learning, you know, like a, under under a another competent qualified and certified inspector and, and there's even another level that brian's added to this is because our inspectors are staffed around the country the types of customers that they see across the country are not the same in each region there's a lot more steel mills in ohio and michigan and pennsylvania mm -hmm. whereas in florida there's not really any steel, at least how they compare to ours. Mm -hmm. So when we're getting our techs uh, through this process, we'll actually make a concerted effort to look at where they've been in terms of uh, what types of customers and we need to bring them into another state to work with another inspector just so they can see the different types of stuff in the different environments. Because again, they're, they're different across the regions. So we just want to make sure our, you know, our, our end goal is any inspector could go anywhere in the country and do an inspection regardless of um, what they're, of who they're visiting. And then I think that's something that people don't often think about. They know that they need a documented in, inspection, but the documentation isn't necessarily always the same. Uh, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences in inspection reports that you've seen in the past 
Yeah. Um, oh God, give you our history. We were doing Excel spreadsheets back in the nineties. And again, it was only alloy chain slings. And if you understand alloy chain slings, it's got a unique serial number. So it gets its own line in a report. Um, even if it's missing its serial number and its tag, it's still an individual item. And that's what's required for alloy chain slings. When you look at shackles, shackles don't have a serial number, but they still require an inspection, but they don't require documentation. But what's the point of looking at it if you're not even going to like make, make, at least make a record? Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, if we looked at 24 uh, one and a half ton shackles, we'll make that as a line item. 24 pieces passed or 12 pieces passed, 12 pieces failed, just so that we have something. Um, that's where we've evolved over the years because we're trying to stay ahead of the curve. If you've ever tried to get a report past an auditor, Mm -hmm. Okay, you know you have to go above and beyond because no auditor is ever going to say, well, you said you looked at my shackles, but you don't have it on the report, right? So right. We're, we're trying to go be a little bit above and beyond. What I've seen in terms of, you know, when, when a customer comes to us for a, an opportunity and we ask them for a copy of a previous report, how many times I've seen a report based on my experience that would not be compliant to the standards is sort of mind-boggling, especially when you see that they come from some of the biggest names of any service providers in the country, you know, keeping it as vague as I can. I've seen reports that have said, listen, they said they looked at all your rigging and they gave you one paragraph that said they looked at 30 pieces of stuff. Well, what is that stuff? Were there alloy chain slings in there? Were there twin paths? Were there lever tools and chain falls? You know, where did they look at your shackles? Did they look at your eye bolts? You know, this type of stuff. So then I challenge back is, well, you, I'll give you this information. Here's the standards you can refer to. I would go back to that provider and say, hey, what did you actually do for me? Because you can't prove anything by this report. And that's the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. I've seen some fine reports from the competition and a lot of people get it. But I saw a couple this year that, uh, you know, uh, we won the opportunity for their business because we were able to inform them about what they really needed to do and why what they weren't receiving was compliant. Without naming names, could you give some examples of that? Like, what have you seen? Oh, geez, yeah. Um, again, a very large crane service company uh, was doing a rigging inspection and, and, and a personal fall protection inspection, too. I know we're talking about rigging today. So when I looked at the report, the amount of information that was missing from the report, again, it, it, there was no proof of compliance. There was no proof that they actually looked at anything because they didn't deal every, detail everything line item by line item. It was literally a paragraph at the end of the crane inspection report that says we did this, this, and this. So what should customers be looking for when they're looking for an inspection company, like specifically on documentation? Like, should they be asking to see a previous inspection report or an example of an inspection report? How can they make sure that the inspection report that they're gonna get is going to be compliant? Oh, absolutely. And, and again, our the, the way we do things is we're a little bit above and beyond with the way we try to document everything we touch in some fashion. Um, and, and really, that's all you have to prove back to the customer. Say, hey, if you look at this line item, this represents a chain sling. And you'll be able to expect, it, you'll be able to explain that to them. To say, listen, across what we're going to inspect is all your types of slings. 
your hooks, your below-the-hook devices. Well, what is a below-the-hook device? We'll explain what that really covers. Lever tools and chain falls are not installed at height. We'll explain that. And then your rigging hardware. And then when we explain all that and you put the report in front of them and say, this is technically what your report will look like if you have this stuff in your facility. And that's what's going to prove the compliance. And then from there, you have the conversation of, well, what information does that report have that I need to bring to my leadership in terms of improvements? Is it more inspections? Is it more training? Is it sales support on application? All sorts of different questions. Brian, what would you say some of the biggest hurdles are that companies face when they're trying to become compliant and how can they get over those hurdles? Taking that first step is the big thing. Starting the process is probably the tricky thing. Uh, making sure you have spares in place, um, understanding that there is there there may be a little bit of pain if there is a that first inspection, um, you know there there's probably going to be things that are going to meet the removal from service criteria. Um, you, we're going to want to we support you in every which way. After that, um, we're going to help you out with replacements, repairs, things like that. But the first inspection, once you get that under your belt, uh, everything's usually very smooth after that. Yeah, Brian hit the you know nail on the head. Is is a lot of customers? It's that first. Let's just get this one thing done first. Oftentimes they'll approach us with they want to be at the end before they've even started. You know what I mean? They kind of want to be done with this before they've even let us in the door to look at their stuff. So when we're working with a customer in the beginning, it's, hey, uh, you need to give us a, a, an outline of what you have, a front load sheet. Just give us an estimate of what you have across the board. And once they do that and once we get in the door and we do that first inspection, it's usually pain-free from there in the sense of you've already done all the hard work. Now you just have to maintain this year over year or month over month or whatever you're doing. Also, there's something I think it's important to bring up in this conversation is across the country for many years and even up until today, a rigging inspection was offered as a free service to many customers from, let's say, a rigging uh, provider, a mm -hmm. rigging company provider. It was their way to maintain a relationship. It was their way to get in the door, but it was also a way to get more business. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm going to come in and I'm going to spend my day looking at your stuff and documenting it, all the repairs and rep replacements should come to me. We call that a conflict of interest agreement that we don't entertain. All we care about when we're there is to do a proper inspection and to get you compliant and to support you on the back end. If you want to spend money with us afterwards, fantastic. If you don't, no problem. We're here to help you be compliant, you know, month after month or year after year. Um, and, and that's what we still see, again, across the, the country as a challenge is, well, we always received them for free. Well, how can you value the inspection if you're unwilling to understand the investment we've had to make in order to create a defendable position for us to even do it for you. And if it's free inspection, is it likely that the salesperson is also the person doing the inspection or do they usually also have an inspector come in and typically it's a salesperson. Typically it's a salesperson. What the way it was in the many years ago, it would be a salesperson and a representative from let's say CM or a representative from Crosby or back in the day it was, uh, um, 
Echo or Peerless or whatnot, right? So they'd go in there, and again, they were only looking at chain slings. But then as it's evolved through slings, all the different types of hardware, the support from the the, the big uh, companies like that has fallen to the wayside because they're not going to spend their time looking at anything else other than what they're producing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it's kind of evolved into a salesperson, and then they'll just take some bodies from the shop. Hey, I need to take need to get this done for this customer. We're going to be gone a half a day, a full day, or we're going to, you know, it's a week long something or other. And again, what are they looking at while they're there? And to give you one horrific story is a customer called me out of uh, North Carolina one time and said, yeah, our rigging provider came in and did my inspection. And I found out halfway through my inspection that they weren't looking at anything that wasn't produced or sold by them. So basically, they were just walking through their shop and only looking at what had their name on it Mm -hmm. in terms of rigging, and everything else was just being left. Um, That's just a unique horror story. When it gets to any other service provider, I don't care if it's a tow motor company or a crane service provider or some other third party, if if you take a guy off the crane and put him on the floor, is he really... Are you utilizing him to the best? And where's that cost being hidden? Yeah. You know, those are just honest questions you have to ask. And then again, what's what's the proof? And I'm not saying anything against crane inspectors or highly qualified individuals. I mean, they're tradesmen of electricians and and welders and mechanics and high level high level stuff. So it's not that I don't think that they can do it, but what's the position that they t- can defend that allows them to do it? Any advice for people who want to start an inspection program? Just like Brian said, just do it. Get somebody yeah, in the door. Just, just reach out and yeah, make contact. And um, you know, once you make contact, it's it's pretty easy from there. We ask all the proper questions. We send you all the documentation, the front load sheets. Um, you know, we we give copies of or examples of our reports, uh, training records. Um, I mean, that's ultimately the stuff that you're looking for. And then to kind of piggyback off what Tom was saying with uh, crane inspectors going and doing inspections, 99% of crane companies don't um, manufacture or sell rigging products. It's usually just either they're a crane service provider or maybe they do manufacture cranes, uh, but 99% don't even sell rigging. So uh, there's a pretty good chance that they cannot even... Uh, supply you rigging on the back end or repair any of the product that they've pulled out of service. Uh, they're probably going to send that off to a third-party provider because they can't even handle that stuff for you. And then think about the cost of that. Yeah. I'm taking something from you. I'm going to send it here. They're going to give me a price. I'm going to mark it up. I'm going to send it back to you. And the weight. And the weight. So there, there's, you know, again, hopefully what we walk away from in this conversation is we're just trying to inform people. There's a ton of rigging inspection out, out there. We want as much as we can get. But we, we, we know other people and on, the, on the customer end of things. We want them to be as informed as possible so that when they're coming to us, they're basically, we know you, we're ready. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the inspection is really the easiest part of everything. It's the Q&A on the front end 
that's a little cumbersome at times, but once you get in the door, and we always encourage our customers, if we're doing a first time inspection or even if we're there for the fifth year in a row, if you've got somebody you want to shadow us during an inspection, just so they can see what we're looking at and how we move through things and why we do what we do, no problem. It is informal training, but it's great to see from somebody else's eyes, like Brian had mentioned very early on, how many times I've been able to walk into a facility and I'll see a chain on a crane 20 feet away and I can tell that it's stretched on 20 feet away. Mm-hmm. You know, you just get, you know, you just get used to this and, and it's a kind of the same thing. That's how we need to get their operators in tune with what they're doing. Every day when they come in, they know when their crane is acting up. They know when it's drifting. They know when the brakes aren't working. They know when it's moving slow or it's choppy because they, you know, somebody jumped a, a jump the rope on the drum, you know, goofy stuff like that. We need to get them to understand that their rigging is just as important. And it just comes down to information. And anyone listening to this, I have to implore to you to research all of the content we have created for you. I don't think there's a question regarding rigging inspections or the rigging itself or how to inspect something or a standard that we have, we haven't answered somewhere that you can use with your own people. It's just there for you. And if you got any questions, I'm always receiving emails from you, Ben. Yep. Hey Tom, can you answer this Q and a from YouTube or web, mm-hmm. you know, web, a uh, web question or whatnot. We love those questions. Um, give us tough ones too. Rigging inspections aren't glamorous. They're not fun. They're usually, painful in the terms of customer has to spend some money at the end of it. But again, let us do the hard work for you and get you into a position where it just becomes something you do, you know, month after month or year after year. And, and, and let us again, do the hard work for you. All right. Thanks guys. So reach out to Tom or Brian. And as always, you can get a hold of any of our other experts at mazellacompanies.com. Don't forget to pop into our learning center. Tom's right. We have a ton of information on rigging inspections there, including free eBooks, courses, articles, and videos. Subscribe to Safety Factor wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can watch it on the Lifting and Rigging channel on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there.